Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Attention, be real guys, campers. It's nearly nightfall where your counselors are, so that means it's time to gather up your opinions on movies of a similar genre and scoot on down to the murky lake of the world's too many podcasts. Jump in and hope for the best. Hello, my name is Chance Solon Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. How are you, buddy? I'm pretty great. I am, I'm on a, like a, a regular sort of camp, uh, adult camp uh excursion myself i am here in uh olympic valley california uh near lake tahoe at the uh location of the 1960 uh winter games uh attending a uh, a writing conference sounds downright rustic yeah so it's i i was very much in the camp spirit um watching uh watching these films uh mostly in this idyllic little one-bedroom apartment i'm in there you go well i am sitting at a desk made out of whatever ikea substitutes for wood so that's as natural as i get here on the portland end nice chance yes. before we we get into our uh genre of the week um let me ask you this have you ever been to sleepaway camp i suspected you might ask and no i have not nor what you have really, never no one i grew up with either interesting i had one experience at sleepaway camp two weeks at the independent lake camp uh, I think it was somewhere in either Pennsylvania or New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wept through the first about 10 days of it, desperately missing uh, the idyllic life I'd, I'd grown accustomed to in uh, Lawrenceville, New Jersey. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then I, 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 sort of, I, I sort of made friends with um, the volleyball instructor who was this just stunning blonde and uh i would help her sort of rake the volleyball court instead of um she was like in her 20s or something and instead of uh socializing with people my own age uh much like i then grew into in my later years i just sort of attached myself to an older generation and uh attempted to both uh you know gain her wisdom and uh bed her simultaneously so oh cool how old were you Oh, I must have been like a hot, like 11 or 12. Great. Yeah. So, uh, I somehow, somehow I knew you had a weird formative camp experience. Like I just would have bet the farm on it. Right. Well, you know, I feel like I've had a a weird formative experience in, uh, in many facets of like pretty quintessential American life. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, me always being the opposite when it was summer in uh, the suburbs of Omaha, we just went outside in our backyards and, you know, beat the hell out of each other playing football or baseball. Who needed it? Nice. Well, speaking of uh, avoiding your peers in favor of having a uh, early adult experience, we're starting with Moonrise Kingdom tonight, uh, and after that, we're going to get into heavyweights and sleepaway camp. But as I said, beginning with the 2012 Wes Anderson movie, a movie that Noah and I saw together in New York City in 2012. Wait, is that true? It is true. Oh, I didn't remember that. Yeah. Do you want a synopsize or shall I? Why don't you go ahead? I'll, uh, I will give it my best go. I mean, it's essentially a movie about two children who run away from the institutions that they don't like. Uh, a daughter from um, a family of lawyers uh, who has three little brothers, um, and the, uh, the other, her partner in, in this sort of... Um, sort of platonic rendezvous not does um is uh is sam uh who is a boy scout uh and he runs away from his troop which is overseen by ed norton uh they meet up and have this little love affair in 1965 on the island of new penzance um and a a search ensues for them while uh they being sort of odd fits because of their the very dire way they they look at life um they have this sort of formative experience on a beach before they're ultimately 
um, found and we learn more about them. So, Dear Suji, here's my plan. Dear Sam, my answer is yes. Dear Suji, one. Dear Sam, where? Dear Suji, walk 400 yards due north from your house to the dirt path which has not got any name on it. Turn right and follow to the end. I will meet you in the meadow. It feels like um, a tonal sort of comparison to um, uh, Rushmore. Yeah, sure. Where you have a precocious young boy who would prefer to live in the adult world uh, than the child world in which he is placed. Um, but I, I think at the same time, they have like that Romeo and Juliet sort of like, will they, won't they? Like, what does this mean? Like, you know, there's so many things conspiring against them. And ultimately, you know, the the conflict of the movie is them being together. What, like, what what that actually means uh, you know, is sort of up to um, the audience in this very sort of the, the framework of this society that like doesn't really allow 12 year olds to, to do a whole lot. Yes. Um, and you understand but, too, if I can just add on like logistically to that, you understand too why they want to uh, run away because um, Susie's parents uh, played by Bill Murray and Francis McDormand um, appear to have like no sort of uh, romantic or emotional relationship at all. And Frances McDormand, her mother is carrying on an affair with Bruce Willis, who is sort of like the lone policeman on this very, um, I- on an Island with no crime or anything happening. And then Sam wants to get away from camp because uh, the other boys are, um, are more like, sort of normal boys who are sort of growing into their kind of like heteronormative selves and uh mm-hmm. and ed norton uh plays scoutmaster ward um and he i don't know he he runs a tight ship at the same time as he is sort of ends up becoming the movie's most bumbling character well yeah that's the interesting thing about his character and i think it plays into like the reason that sam ultimately wants to run away is because he sees like if he continues on this trajectory he's doomed to be ultimately like a man child yes and that's what edward norton is like he has he has this moral code and he has this sort of rubric of things he needs to check off every day but ultimately he's he's a child he's living in a child's world and he's never really um transcended that um, but going back to the Rushmore comparison too, right. just the way that Max Fisher like sort of like uh, um, precociously is thinking about his legacy at like twelve <laughs> years old. Yeah, uh, it's the same way that uh, Sam is thinking about his his romantic life. In that there's this this urgency about it that is. I mean, very Wes Anderson, but like so unearned, I think like in like just the world as we know it in Western civilization that um, it just becomes sort of compelling just because of its inherent ridiculousness. Yeah. Um, I I have difficulty with this movie. Um, And if I can just you want me to if I can just jump into that. Um, yeah, let me let me know what your difficulties are. My difficulty is that I think, and I think the Rushmore comparison is a good one, but I think there's a key difference in that I think we're positioned in Rushmore to um, sort of, without making it sound cruel, if I can still use the idiom, to like kind of laugh at Max Fisher. We get to kind of watch him be a goof. Um, and there's something very, like, intimate and intense about what Anderson tries to project onto these kids. And I think I, again, found it hard to watch their scenes in particular. Yeah. Like it's funny because I just don't think that the Sam character is as round or maybe like just the actor who plays him is just didn't like really like go balls to the wall the way that um, Jason Schwartzman does. True, but also in, uh, Schwartzman was not eleven. Right. Yeah, that's yeah, that helps. You know, you sort of you you have Wes Anderson at an interesting moment here where he likes this sort of character, the young precocious characters. He has two of them, mm-hmm. but he's also in this world where to get his movies financed, he needs to sort of tell the bigwigs 
that he's going to get like a bunch of A-list stars playing against type. For sure. For sure. So I feel like he's so preoccupied with like making sure like Edward Norton has enough screen time, Bill Murray, Francis McDormand, Bruce Willis, uh, even Jason Schwartzman as an older man. Um, and then it's what Tilda Swinton mm-hmm. coming in too. That it almost like it almost becomes the a movie sort of around this incident of these two people running away together that I felt like watching it f- the first time and, and watching it again now that it's, it felt a bit like unfocused to me. When he starts to do his satire of an, of a disaster movie, which is kind of like the last 20 minutes, right. um, there's this feeling that it's really not grounded to anything. And I mean, it feels that way anyway. It's like Wes Anderson trying to do Michael Bay with like balsa wood or something like that. Um, yeah. I think when, when Wes Anderson is at his best, he endeavors to sketch these very interesting characters and then put them in situations where they, the values that they've held up until this point are challenged. I agree. Um, and like, I mean, I know that critics don't agree with me uh, in some cases, but I think the strongest examples of that are the Royal Tenenbaums, um, uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel, and then the Life Aquatic. Because mm-hmm. I think like those ones like had, you know, the crosshairs on something very specific. And even though they're all ensemble pieces there is like a main protagonist yes, and, and he's, he or she is set up with something that, you know, I guess it's he in all three of these examples. Um, but they're set up with a series of, this is my life up until this point, And then something's going to happen to make me change everything I've known up until, you know, this point. And then the, in the, in the, the lesser sort of Anderson movies, uh, which I'd say are this, um, the Darjeeling limited uh, and maybe even like a, like a bottle rocket or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say fantastic. Mr. Fox falls into the former category of being like a pretty targeted narrative uh, exploration. Mm-hmm. But with those latter movies, it's just like you have a lot of sad people trying to figure out how to reconcile their sadness Tell me if you think our ideas line up here. I think they do, because I would divide the movies you're talking about into similar camps. For as much as he creates and renders, and as sort of unreal as you know that to be, my favorite Anderson movies, and I think Budapest is sort of the quintessential example, is that you've watched something that has been so rendered, and at the end you realize there is a payoff because the characters were somehow still real in it. Um, the well, Yeah. I would agree with that. Like, I think the the magic of Anderson when he does pull it off is that he's created real characters in a fake world. Exactly. And in this movie, he is so earnestly imposing a f- a thing that is not earnest. Turning you know turning children into adults in his very Wes Anderson way is an unearnest act, but he's doing it with so much passion. And something about that dissonance um, rubs me well, really the wrong way. For me, it was not like a quintessential Anderson, like invented world. Like for him, he's taking the invention, if not the American invention, then like the cinematic invention of a summer camp. Mm-hmm. And also the American, if not the cinematic invention of this sort of like resort island, like this house full of summer homes. Yeah. And so he's taking something that very much exists or like the grand Budapest hotel. Like this is not something that like we know, right? This is something that he has to like build, but then he gives us real characters within it. That makes sense for this. He spends so much time sort of creating these institutions that we already understand, but in sort of his like very miniaturist, very sort of, uh, you know, heightened to the nth degree, you know, brush strokes. Yeah. But then you're left with these characters who are so constricted to this world he's created because it exists both as an Anderson world and as an American world. I mean, this is like a stand in for Martha's Vineyard or Nantucket or Block Island or something like that. Yeah. 
but because there's so many constrictions on the world he's constructed, you know, the characters almost feel like plot devices. Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah. What is Bruce Willis's purpose in this? I mean, I think he's good in it. I think it looks like he's having a good time and it's an interesting way to look at him. Um, right. But yeah. What is he in this movie? If not a, symbol of Susie's mother's unhappiness and then a way for Sam to become adopted at the end. Like he's not much more than that. Right. No, I think he does really well. Like I think Wes Anderson's a great director. I think he does the most he can with the story he's been given. I mean, unfortunately he was the one who gave himself the story. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I I don't think this is like an, uh, I mean, ultimately I think I'm going to say that this is, you know, maybe like a soft, good, good. Okay. Um, I mean, I've been very critical of it, but I mean, it's a well-made movie with some terrific performances and some entertaining performances. And like, I think it says a little something about, you know, what it's like to be in love and not like really understand what that means. So, but I, again, I think it's, you know, uh, compared to the other movies out there, it's certainly closer to good, good than it is to bad, good. Sure. Um, you know, I think I would say it's, for me, it's, it's good, bad, um, because I think it still has the, um, you weren't entertained. No. In fact, that's the, that is the part I, I do not enjoy watching this movie. And I feel like that's sort of what I, what I tried to articulate amid all your structuralism, um, is that I, I don't really like watching it. I mean, he's, he is this director who sort of creates these, beautiful homes and universes and mazes and he's he's such an artificialist and in this one i feel like he sort of forced me into a hallway where he um interesting wanted to show me what he thought was real and i didn't want to see it as we transition into heavyweight should we talk really quick about what the camp was like we kind of missed that yeah well i think that's an important thing to analyze in this genre and my two questions for you chance uh well i guess you it's going to be tough for you to answer one of them because you've never been to a sleepaway camp but uh it was a does this seem like a real camp to you and b oh is it something that is it a camp that you would want to attend gotcha um well no it didn't seem real but he also wasn't trying to make it seem real because <laughs> he doesn't do right. he doesn't do that. Um, and no, I don't think I would want to attend either. I think I'm trying to like let me think about what felt real about it, at least within like the genre tropes. I think you um, did well to call Ed Norton uh, a man child, and I think one of the more interesting sort of uh, ancillary. Uh, cliches about this genre is that the people who work at camps are very weird people. Well, it's it's not that they're just weird. It's that they've chosen to lead, like for better or worse, even though they are counselors or directors or whatever they are at these camps, they are still in a child's world. Mm-hmm. Their, their authority is not over anything adult. It's over the regimented, you know, uh, presentation of meals and like menial activities to get children away from their parents for two to two weeks to two months. And not only that, but they, the ultimate like sort of point of all these movies is that the kids get to be in a place where the adults are not real authority figures. Right. And I think, I mean, Wes Anderson certainly endeavors to make the point that, you know, maybe the whole world is just sort of camp and we're all (laughs) great. We're all sort of, you know, just trying to figure out like this one big game of capture the flag or something like that. Um, but yeah, I don't think I would go to this camp. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I've never been to something so serious as like a Boy Scout camp like this, but uh, it certainly felt a bit too satirical to to be that that realistic sort of camp experience that I think the uh, the other two sort of endeavor to have. Yeah, I can see why Sam ran away. Uh, yeah. So from, do you want to transition from there? I would love that. Why don't we go to 1995's Heavyweights, very specific kind of camp. Yeah. So we have here, um, this is an early Apatow movie. Yeah. He co-wrote it. Am I right there? He co-wrote okay. it. And then Stephen Brill, um, who just directed that dumb looking Adam Sandler movie on Netflix. Oh, hey, people hated uh, that. People fucking just <laughs> despise that movie. Um, but he directed this. So basically we have 
um, a movie about a kid, Jerry, who for sort of ambiguous reasons, I mean, other than, you know, his like inherent obesity is sent by his father and mother, Jeffrey Tambor, and then some other person um, to a camp that I mean, I guess it's sort it's a, it's a it's marketed as a fat camp, right? But it turns out the reality of it is it's that I mean it's a camp that fat people attend, but it's not meant to like be a like one of these sort of like military weight loss camps. It's ultimately a camp where fat kids just have fun away from a world that criticizes them for being overweight. Yeah, it's more like a positive like it's like identity politics camp for fat kids. Right. And so then Jerry and company and like the supporting cast of the Mighty Ducks uh, shows <laughs> up to this camp and they're like, oh, it's not a fat camp. It's just a camp where we like do fun stuff and like there's great food and like snacks abound and like go karts and the blob and everything like that. And then it turns out that Jerry Stiller, who has owned the camp for 33 uh, years, um, has had to file chapter nine bankruptcy and sell the camp to, um, his son, white to his, I mean, his actual <laughs> son, right. Ben Stiller, who's playing proto white Goodman from dodgeball, sure who has, has seen the camp as a business opportunity to actually make it one of these aforementioned militaristic fat camps to uh, get these kids skinny in order to sell, what he, he he's dreamed of um, sort of a line of infomercial type uh, videos that he'll sell to young people showing this camp. It was a dream come true until the new owner. That is out of here, mister. Oh, no. Turned it into a nightmare. Lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. And yeah, and then the movie sort of... Uh, and evolves from there with the kids and the counselors trying to rebel against this new regime. And Tony Perkins um, losing his mind. And, and, and Ben Stiller losing his mind uh, in turn. In one of sort of the crazier, more like movie defining like a very average movie with an insane performance, I would say. Yeah. It's a, so this is a Disney film, like with a, a hard PG. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I mean, it's in that sort of, that, that milieu of like the big green Ooh. and like, um, and like I said, uh, Mighty Ducks. And it's, it's sort of in that like comedy, but also like inspirational Disney in the nineties kind of space. Absolutely. It, it's, it's tough to like get a, a read on this movie because if I can be so bold, um, you know, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> No, and it's just a series. It's just a series of like, like um, American kids movie tropes. Is that fair? I think that's fair. I would say that this this movie exemplifies a a crucial idea about camp movies, though, and it's it's a paradox. It's a contradiction, which is why I think this movie feels both really weird and at times really boring, and it's that. This genre has sort of like so many obligatory cliches, like dances, baseball games, like one sort of like wiser ringleader among the kids. Like it has so many cliches. And yet one of the reasons you make these movies is because anything can go like it's a lawless setting. And I feel like heavyweights exemplifies that. Yeah, I just have trouble with like... I was trying to get like the read on the movie for like what it was trying to do. Like, what was the point of this movie? Like what inspired, like who would then be like a huge comedic presence, Judd Apatow to make this movie. Like, what is this movie like doing? And it's tough to get like, I mean, it just hits, it sort of like checks all these boxes of like, here's a kid who's sort of an outsider Mm-hmm. And then not understood by his parents. And then he's sort of sent to this place that seems hospitable and seems understanding. But then he's sort of, but then, you know, he's presented with a set of circumstances where he has to rise to the occasion to sort of prove the worth 
of this other thing and this idea of, you know, that the other, being an other is okay. Right. What Stiller's performance becomes, there is such a big imbalance as to be almost gravitational between Stiller's performance and what the other adults in this movie are doing. Like the other adults in this movie are like, they're, they're approximations of like what kids think adults are, which is just sort of like talking machines that are (laughs) either nice or mean. And Ben, but Ben Stiller becomes an insane person. Like to the point of like where his like physical comedy is the point of the movie. And so like what's moving it forward to me feels very boring at the same time as this sort of like unnecessarily wild and dark presence is taking over. I almost feel like, and maybe this may be too bold to say, but I feel like the cast save for Ben Stiller is going for a certain comedic realism, like a realism that we will then see later in Apatow movies. You know, like you get that it's fake Apatow comedy world, but it's not so distant from our own world as to be like alienating. Yeah. But then because you have like, who is, you know, uh, white Goodman coming in and being so big that the rest of the movie like just seems kind of boring. Yeah. Because they're they're not really challenging him on the screen. That's definitely true. I guess I feel like if Ben Stiller was not in this movie though, it would be so unremarkable and we would never no one would ever like reference it as kind of like a cult favorite, which is sort of like what it became, right? Like um people who like caught it on Disney in the 90s like you know bought the dvd so they could like make jokes and like skip to the stiller improv scenes i hadn't even heard of it until you brought it up Hmm. um so that that reference is sort of that sort of cultural context is sort of lost on me Hmm. um but yeah i mean i think if you are like a, a kid on a summer afternoon like and your parents drop you off at the movie theater and like this is the movie you saw in the nineties, like I'm sure it was fine. (laughs) Right. Um, but it's so, it's so aggressively unremarkable. Like there are so many Disney movies that like for better or worse, like are remarkable, like whether or not it's just how sentimental and stupid they are, or just like whether they're actually good movies. It's not a bad movie, but it's not, it's certainly like not a good movie. And it, it certainly has, I mean, maybe my impression of it would be different if I had any sort of like childhood nostalgia for this film. Sure. But like, as this was the first time I saw it, like, I'm going to have to give it a, like a, an apologetic bad, bad. I think that's fine. I mean, I do have some childhood nostalgia for it. And like a lot of my friends do as well. I mean, I remembered seeing it when I was a kid and I sort of remembered just this like dark presence doing front flips through the mess hall. And so when I rewatched it at like age, you know, 16, 17 or whatever, I was sort of amazed to see that like how much this movie gives over to, I mean, a villain who is in one way in like a 90s sense, in a very 90s sense, he's sort of that like attractive like infotainment person trying to sell you a bill of goods and in another way um he's like hurting and abusing kids but the fact that they turn stiller loose here almost looser than i think they turned him in dodgeball even though he has much more to do in that movie um i think forever makes it like a bad good watchable movie because i will always come back for that Interesting. I just felt like too, like I never like was rooting for the kids. Like I didn't feel like the alienation that Jerry feels like at home. And then like, it it was just also either shallow or ridiculous. Yeah. And then they're, they're ultimately like pretty cruel right back to Ben Stiller. Right. So, I mean, they're ultimately like holding him hostage. (laughs) And they, like, tie his cronies to trees. But he's trying to change who they are, Noah. And uh, if not... Yeah, 
Well, that's like a bigger question too, but like the ethics of this film and like also, I mean, if we want to zoom out to the genre a little bit, like what it says about what we're supposed to glean from the institution of summer camp. Right. And I should say, I think if (laughs) I think we sort of purposely did not do um, Wet Hot American Summer because it's so thoroughly, (laughs) in addition to all its weirdness, sort of like uh, distills and like masses up these ideas but i think it is this place where like the outcasts from the rest of society sort of like find their like temporary respite like doesn't matter who you were in school like thank god school just got out like you're about to go be around people who there's bound to be someone there for you i think is sort of the optimistic way to read these movies at the same time as there are also bullies at every camp right well, I just thought it was sort of like weirdly uh, both patronizing and sort of cynical to say that like the the summer camp is like a, a place away from your normal life. And it's sort of implying that the only place these kids can find understanding is in these weird like subcultures, mm-hmm. which was sort of a strange, I think, thing to like. I mean, yes, like on the surface, it's like you'll find friends if you don't have any right now. But then like in its suggestion of where you will find them was sort of bleak. Oh, yeah. I think that's true also. So I don't know. I'm going to have to give it a bad bat and never watch this again. (laughs) So that means we're talking about 1983's uh, Sleepaway Camp, does it not? A cult classic. Oh, man. Emphasis on the cult. You know who, who this movie's for, right? It's for mom, a doer. <laughs> yes, I believe that is the first image I see when uh, the movie. Yeah, begins. this movie begins with its uh, acknowledgments page. Yeah, and it says if you if you watch this film, it says for mom colon a doer. Yes, and you just know from the opening. So if I could just paint a picture for you, can I do the synopsis here, please? Because this movie has like a pretty strange but special place in my heart. How many times have you seen this? Uh, not that many. Like only three or four. All right. Well, I watched it for the first time today and was deeply disturbed. But you please head out. Oh, I, I've been deeply disturbed every time I've I've watched it. I'm so, okay. Which I think is a, a a testament to its quality. But um, from the opening scene, so it's a panning shot over the title credits of this summer camp and over it, you have not only like the echoes of, you know, camp noises, but you also have this fucking score that is just playing for keeps. Mm -hmm. Like, you know that this movie is like, is fucked up. Like, you know that like the worst shit is about to go down. And then, so, and you also know that this movie only has like a sort of um, tenuous knowledge of like how one makes a film. Yes. Because the movie begins in the future where the camp is closed, uh-huh. right? <laughs> yeah. Because you sort of pan through the camp and then the last shot of the sort of title sequence prologue is a sign over the camp sign that says for sale. Right. And so like the camp has gone out of business. Then you go to a second prologue eight years earlier where this, the, this, uh, these two kids and their dad are on a sailboat and for no fucking reason whatsoever, one of the kids and the dad is killed by like this, this, uh, this other boat pulling a person that's water skiing on the back. And then we cut to what is, I guess the present or sort of the past before the camp is closed to show what is ultimately the final summer of this, of the titular sleepaway camp. It's intense. Um, and our, our, our main characters in the present then are, uh, uh, Angela, who's one of the survivors of the boating accident that you see in the second prologue. Uh, and her cousin, Ricky, um, who is to sort of be her chaperone around Camp Arawak because Angela is, is so quiet and, and shy that uh, she does not speak to people. At first, you don't think she speaks at all, but eventually she sort of uh, only speaks to people that she's she's interested in. Um, and, the- and so then we have the, the counselors, too. Well, I, I found it so interesting because like the people who attend this camp 
are either the supporting cast of Saturday Night Fever or like participants <laughs> of like the Anthony Michael Hall lookalike contest. <laughs> yes, um, and they're so you have they like very white between, preppy kids. It could be anywhere and then between like, age nine and thirty-five. Nine and thirty-five, and either like very white and very preppy, or just like the most heinous like Italian stereotypes. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's just sort of tough to say like where this camp is, like who the demog- like who it appeals to. Welcome to sleepaway camp. Someone is watching you. Hey, Baba Reba. Someone. Is waiting for you. Someone wants to scare you to death. Is it fair to say that you could have easily turned the name of the camp from uh, Camp Arawak into a more, uh, you know, sort of on the nose name to simply Camp Rape? Oh, is that fair? Absolutely. The level of sort of like gross patriarchy like happening in this camp what i have written down is that this movie is the hours meets friday the 13th in terms of like interesting the psychological damage inflicted on the women of the camp well that's the weird thing about it like on one hand it's like an, an exploit an exploitative 80s slasher movie yes and on the other hand like it's weirdly feminist but then, like, because of the twist ending, which it's famous for, it completely cashes in the latter read. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's but true. then, like, in 2016, the read, I feel like, is even more interesting. I mean, sh- we should probably spoil it, right? So we can have an interesting conversation. This movie... <laughs> well, let's let's wait a minute okay. to spoil it. All right. So basically, the setup for this movie is there's this girl, Angela, and she's been, like psychologically scarred from both seeing her father and brother killed in this boating accident. And then also like living with this insane mother. And then you have like this weird sort of like camp infrastructure in place where you have like these very bitchy, uh, like female counselors and just like these very like rape culture enthusiast male. One of the first things you hear in this movie is the cook saying that he wants to like uh, like rape kids and then you have the the proprietor of the uh of the summer camp mel perpetually cigar smoking and what i think is so funny about mel as a character is like he's sort of like hands off and it's clearly like he's this working class guy right yeah. who like has this camp and has clearly had it for many years but you think he like is a good person right I think for a lot. Yes, I think so. For a lot of this movie, you just think he's like, like kind of a dirtbag, but like ultimately like he cares about these kids and cares about running his business well. And like, but then there's that moment where he's like, what? 16 year old employee is like, Hey, do you want to meet at your house at like nine 30 and fuck? And then he puts on his like best leisure (laughs) suit and then like waits for her. Yeah, he gets something out of the closet he hasn't worn since 1967 and, like, waits anxiously for Meg to come up. And then has no qualms about, like, asking the other female 16-year-olds, like, hey, I was supposed to, like, fuck Meg, (laughs) spelled M-E-G. Have you seen her? And they're like, nah, Mel, but you're okay. And he's like, yeah, I am okay. (laughs) I don't think anything of it. Actually, I think I'm going to murder Ricky by the end of this movie. Oh, my God. So you have Angela who's who's doesn't really speak that much and she's bullied because she doesn't speak that much and she's sort of a weirdo. Um, and then everyone who really like bullies her dies. Yes. And so I, I guess the movie is like trying to lead you to believe that it's Ricky who's committing the murders. Right. Like because he's standing up for her. But I was never – and even in the first time I saw this movie, I'm like 100% it's Angela. Not, yes. Not at all. All there was no like hint that Ricky was like weird or dark enough to do that. Let's zoom out. Can we zoom out a little bit for like a first timer here on this movie? Yeah, it has that sort of chaotic, incapable, low budget like seventies eighties movie that I I love to make fun of because the li- again like mm-hmm. the line readings are ridiculous. Um, oh yeah, like they're either. Um, 
it's basically like you gave a bunch of first-time actors like a Howard Hawks script sometimes. Like, lighten up, will mm-hmm. ya? But like, <laughs> but that, <laughs> but the thing about it is, har har, this camp movie is only campy in retrospect. Like, it is not itself trying to be funny. You know what I mean? No. No, this movie has no levity to speak of, but only has acquired levity uh, over the passage of time. Yes. Uh, And it's like, it's really, I mean, even in the context of 2016, it is very violent. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) It's pretty gory. I mean, even by today's standards. Uh, But speaking of the dialogue, can I read you like my favorite? Because all of these movies in this, like, there are a lot of like male posturing in like situations, usually like sporting events or races or something like yeah, that. Of course. And they're like throwing whip, witty quips back and forth. Well, I think this movie takes the cake for witty quips okay. where we're in a, a quintessential summer camp softball game. And one guy says to the guy batting, come on, take the bat off your shoulder to which the guy batting uh, quippily responds. Hey, fuck you. <laughs> Oh my god. Well, this movie I was reading about it on Wikipedia. Uh-huh. As one does. And as one does in a in a movie like this. So this movie was made by this lawyer guy. Yeah. Uh, who Robert like, uh, Hiltzik. Who like had no business making a movie and then never made a movie again until he like re-got the rights to this movie after there's there's two sequels to this movie made by completely different people. Um but nobody really like considered this movie until like somewhat after I would say the initial one came out and then there was just sort of intellectual property just sort of sitting there. Yeah. But I have to, I mean, as someone who's actually been to a sleepaway camp, I feel like despite its flaws and despite like it's, it's problematic, you know, sort of gender politics and it's sort of shoddy, like general filmmaking. It, it, it certainly like conveys the like feeling of a sleepaway camp. How's that? Which is sort of, it, it's sort of like anything kind of goes. Really and like raw? Everyone's just, like emotions are yeah, raw? Yeah, really raw. And like you're all just sort of in a place and then you're like doing stuff, but you're really just like killing time until it's time to go back to school. And like you're trying to hook up with people and you're trying to like make new friends and like people get bullied and, you know, the counselors are as inept as the people, or as the kids and like tough to say like what the end game of the people who own the place are. Sure. And just like it's just like the day to day operation of what a sleepaway camp looks like, I thought as though the authenticity felt right to me. Okay, interesting. Maybe like more right than any of the other two movies. Huh. But this movie has been regarded by like pretty serious film critics as having an ending so surprising as to be compared to um, Psycho. Yeah, it's it's insane. And I, I, I went to the kitchen to get a snack and some water and I was watching it on my laptop in my bed with eight minutes left to go. And Sarah, my, who I, my girlfriend who I live with was like, what's that movie about? And I was like, ah, it's just, you know, slasher camp movie. I got like eight minutes left. Um, I'm going to plop back down on the bed and, and, uh, you know, finish it out. And, uh, I was, it's in, it was unbelievable what happened to me as a person. <laughs> Yeah, I was waiting for that like text message because you sort of told me that you were watching it this afternoon, yeah. and I was just waiting for that text message of like, "God damn it!" Because <laughs> I knew it was coming, and I mean, like the sequels like very much play into the final shot. Um, but can we talk about it? Because like I, it's surprising, and it's it's out there, and it's subversive, and it definitely has like a more interesting read, I would say, today than it probably did then. Yes. Um, but I don't, I don't know if I can be so bold as to admitting that I don't understand this particular New Yorker cartoons joke. Um, I don't think I get it. Okay, so let's let's talk it out. You want to talk it out? So basically, so we can talk it out to the to the listeners here. So flash a flashback in our conversation to the the movie's opening where this boat accident killed who you think is the father and the son and then the daughter survived and then was raised by this woman but what turns out through flashback you see that it was not in fact the father and the uh the son killed it was the father and the daughter but then the son was raised by this crazy woman uh Ricky's mom 
to be a girl. Yes. And so he's a boy and he's been a boy the whole time. And so the arresting final image is him killing or him holding the dead body of like the boy that's been interested in him all summer thinking that he was a girl covered with blood and like complete like and his penis. Yeah. And you see that he has like a boy chest and like a flaccid penis and he he's making this face that is indescribable. Indescribable. His, and his mouth is open and like there's this shrieking noise that you can't tell if it's like the actor or like the music and there's the Italian porn star guy and one of the f- counselors who's still alive just going like He's a boy. He was a boy. He's a boy the whole time. And then the movie Which is ends. so in incredible contrast to the feelings that you're having, the like blandness of their delivery. So the 19 like early 80s read on it for me is it's playing with your expectations that like women can't be violent, right? Correct, yes. And so you never expected it to be the woman committing these crimes. But then when she stands up and reveals that she's a man, it's like, oh, women still aren't violent. It was a man the whole time. Interesting. Fine. So you leave that there. But now we're in 2016. So you have this movie that winds up until its last 10 seconds being like a pretty, I would say like, pre like like sort of pro feminist movie right yes of this woman who is in who's been abused and she's in this camp and she's exacted her vengeance the way and she's been people have thought it was this boy but it wasn't this boy it was her and that's sort of like that's an sort of an empowering thing but then the movie sort of asserts that like what gave her the ability to kill was the f- and really stand up for herself was the fact that she was a man all along, which is like not a feminist read. <laughs> for me, it's like it's surprising because it's nonsense, but it doesn't really add anything to the. I mean, yes, it explains like why she didn't want to shower with the other girls or why she didn't want to go in the pool or the the lake or whatever. Yeah, or, or why but their it, mockery of her was so like hurtful. But it doesn't explain her motives. For or her violence or really anything. Well, I think the spot that you run into trouble politically, but then I can talk. I can try to talk our way out of that in a minute. Is that like this would fall? I think if you were taking like a LGBT form of criticism hard on it, would be that um, that this like belongs in sort of that psycho cinema of like gay or trans horror where sort of the person is so unstable because their gender or their sexuality was unstable, which I think someone in 2016 could like knock it for. But then you have the thing that like, you know, the the thing is like, this is, Angela is not a transgender person. She was a person who was sort of like forced into some kind of cosmetic surgery there is some sort of like head bandaging going on but also you have the very 80s thing you cannot get away from which is that when you go back to the mom they're in like a david bowie music video where like androgyny and like queer aesthetics are sort of celebrated it's you can talk all the way around it if you want well there's i mean there's something interesting too about like if you consider this to be like a monster movie yeah so, like, th- th- her male genitalia is the scariest thing about her. Right. Which is, again, right. like, sort of a feminist thing. Yeah. And, I mean, if you're looking for further defense, you can also say that, like, this... If you're sort of looking for what made Angela insane, she went to Camp Rape. Like... Right. She was driven. It was the patriarchy that drove her to to murder. It was this rape culture that existed. Like even this sweet, this quote unquote, like sweet boy who had a crush on her and who was not like, not really like lured in by the temptress Judy was still a rapist. Like at first, like chance he got, he was like going for the buttons in her blouse. Right. Like he, it was aggressive. It was always aggressive from any, every male character had aggression. And then her revealing that her plight was the fact that she had a penis. 
Like that's so, I think it's, I think it's weirdly subversive so much so that even despite maybe the efforts of the original production team, that I think politically it holds up in 2016. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I think it is like a weirdly political, weirdly subversive film that like, despite its hokiness, like is a pretty good like example of like what horror cinema can do, especially in terms of gender politics. Sure. So for that reason, and forgive me chance. Oh God, come on. But I think it's a good, good. I mean, I agree. It's very watchable and shocking and will send you for sort of a, an individual loop wherever your sort of socio-political thinking goes, but the production value and acting are so bad. And the characters are such nonsense with like their motive, very disparate motivations. There is no way you can call this a good, good movie. It's bad. Good. Fair enough. All right. What a fun though. (laughs) series of movies this is a fun genre this is super weird um i hope people people liked it um because yeah these are these are just in their they're so different because camp movies are anything goes movies even though like you know exactly where they're going to start and end and what scenes have to happen to get you there well they're like contemporary westerns directed at children Ooh, ooh. This was something. Let's uh let's stay in touch till next summer, eh? Absolutely. Let's let's write each other letters and uh always remember the good times we had uh at camp. At camp be real guys. There you go. Uh so yeah, everybody should uh listen to us on uh SoundCloud, uh iTunes podcasts and Stitcher, even though I don't know what that is. Um <laughs> Follow us on Twitter at Be Real Guys. Real is always spelled like a film reel. Shoot us your emails with your own camp stories to berealguys at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And again, special thanks to, as always, to Michael Todd for all of his assistance on the internet. Chance, our technical producer. I'm Noah, our mascot. And uh, that's basically it. So, buddy. Make sure you uh, take that bat off your shoulder. Uh, (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) Good night, pal. (laughs) 